I saw Mike Goff on a ladder bringing a lady down. She had a white gown on. And he was about halfway down the ladder, and Smokey Faison was footing the ladder. And this was on the Franklin Street side. So I ran over. You know, I'm young. You know, hadn't been in the fire service a year yet. You know, I'm still green. I run over there, and I'm like, Smokey, what's going on? He said, just here, help me foot the ladder. We get the lady down. And um, she gets to the ground, and I remember Mike asking her, is anybody else in there? And she just couldn't answer. And he said, okay, I'm going back in. And he went towards the Progress Index side, the alley. Smokey Faison took the lady around to the other side, the engine. And I went around front to the Sycamore Street side. And from the time we split at that ladder till the time the explosion was less than 90 seconds. Oh, as soon as I grabbed that hose line, there was a noise that you'll never forget. And it was like, and then slow motion. It happened so fast, but it was slow motion. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And uh, thanks to those who've helped support this effort and to document and share these stories through Patreon. And uh, I post uh, some episodes early and some other episodes get added uh, as we go along. So thanks to the patrons who who help support. And if you'd like to help support, uh, go to patreon.com backslash Firehouse Logbook Podcast. And uh, this episode really has two purposes. We're going to talk to uh, some retired fire service professionals who had a long and distinguished career and also to talk about uh, one historic and tragic incident that impacted the fire service all across central virginia many years ago and we'll talk about that and uh, we've got a live studio audience in the in the background too kenny Fernier, bubby bish and gene beamer you guys feel free to chime in whenever you want this is the second time we've had a, a studio audience and uh, for some reason i think you guys are going to be a little less quiet than the first one we had was no, nothing personal but feel free to chime in you guys got some history too and bubby was on episode uh 22 i believe it was but officially our guest today is one is a returning guest uh from episode 13 glenn dean with the state fire marshal's office glenn good to see you again good to be seen and uh retired from the petersburg fire department is captain james or jimbo rice jimmy good to see you thank you it's good to be here and uh also formerly with petersburg fire department but retired from chesterfield one bubba ashby nice to be here good to see you guys nice to see you so, uh, hey, thanks, you guys, for, uh, for doing this. Um, we'll talk a little bit more as we get along about what the, what the significance of the date this is going to publish is. But uh, uh, part of the whole process of this podcast has just been to kind of document people's individual histories and some, some histories of departments as we go around. So, uh, Glenn, you, you told, talked a little bit about your history in Petersburg um, uh, on episode 13. Just to kind of highlight, where, when did you start in Petersburg and when did you make the transition over to the fire marshal's office? Uh, to the state fire marshal's yeah. office. Okay, uh, started with Petersburg January three nineteen seventy, until April fifteen, nineteen eighty seven, when I took a position with uh, deputy state fire marshal, um, 
leaving Petersburg. I uh, started Petersburg as a firefighter, was promoted to captain, and then assistant chief or battalion chief. Uh, was the city's first, you know, full-fledged fire marshal with all the attendant authorities and powers and uh, inspection staff. So that's the bullet points, if you will. There you go. And anybody who wants to learn more about Glenn's time at the state fire marshal's office, certainly jump into that earlier episode. He and Ed Altizer were there and talked about the time and all their code development stuff that went on at the state. So, uh, Jimbo Rice, uh, first time guest to the podcast. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for being. How did how did you get started in the fire department? I got started in the fire department through a friend of mine who was Bubba Ashby's uncle, uh, A. G. Ashby. He was a uh, Petersburg firefighter. And we were friends, and uh, we were doing some work together, and he mentioned to me that, hey, man, you ought to come on and get in the fire department. We've got an opening. It was 51 firefighters in 1971, and someone was getting ready to retire, and that was the only way that you could get a job at that time was someone to, uh, to retire. So uh, I, I applied for the job and took the test, and... Uh, I was hired on, I started my first day was February the 3rd, 1971, right on Glenn Dean's heels. There you go. And uh, we worked together uh, numerous times at several different stations. And uh, so that's that's how I got started. And uh, I was a firefighter at uh, Engine 4, and then Engine 3, and then Engine 2, and... Uh, Consequently, promotions came along. You guys didn't really have lieutenants per se, did you? You were sergeants, and then because uh, there were some changes in rank structure, I read about too. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think back now. Uh, it was probably I, I don't remember even lieutenant. I think there was a short period of time that there were three lieutenants in the off in in the department, but it quickly transitioned from it was firefighter, sergeant, captain, battalion chief. Yeah. On a, yeah. But there was a short period of time where they had, I think it was three lieutenants in the department, one for each shift. But that was short-lived. Yeah. That was short-lived. Yeah, that was less than a year. Yeah. And the sergeants, were they uh, were they engine officers or were they operators? Both. Uh, yeah, at that time they were both. Uh, yeah. They became just operators. Okay. But at that time it was a firefighter, sergeant, captain. What yeah. was uh, what was the basic training like in 1971 when you came on board? What kind of rec- Recruit school did you have to go through? OJT. <laughs> well, the, the, my final interview with the uh, city manager and the police chief and the fire chief, um, they said, look, we got five openings in the police department. We got one opening in the fire department. We think you can make a pretty good police officer. <laughs> so they were trying to recruit so you to up, the other I side. I walking out the room. I said, no, thank you. I don't want none of that. You know, They said, no, 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 come on back. We're going to hire you. You know. So this is kind of cool. I just want to throw this in there. There you go. They tr- tried to recruit you to the dark <laughs> so, side. So anyway, uh, my first day, and we'll get to the training question in a second. Yeah. My first day, I walk into the Market Street Fire Station. Uh, we're going to have there that morning a, a, a basic first aid class, which was CPR, stop, stop the bleeding CPR. That was the original EMT in Petersburg. Bobby remembers that well. Were you, were you teaching it back then, Bobby? <laughs> no, no. All right. Uh, <laughs> but so anyway, when I walked in through the front doors of the Market Street Fire Station, all of the doors of the trucks were open, and there were 870 pump shotguns laying in the front seats of the fire trucks. And I go, what in the hell is that? 
So I walk on through and I get into the kitchen of the Market Street Fire Station at 8 a.m. in the morning. There's 20 firemen in the kitchen in, in, in the Market Street Fire Station and they all got on 357 Magnums revolvers. What have I gotten myself into? So the back, back, back up one second, the starting pay for the fire department at that time was uh, $5,508. If you will. That would be a year. Yeah, yeah, per year. Gross. Yeah, gross. <laughs> The starting pay for the police officers was uh, $5,500 more. Excuse me. <laughs> so I said, damn, maybe I should have taken that 500 bucks. That's a $500 pay raise. And there was a hole in the kitchen table about that big around. And I looked at that, and they said, do you know what that is? I said, no. They said, well, that's where Willie Massey dropped his gun in and went off and blowed a hole through the <laughs> kitchen table. <laughs> I said, I think I'll go take that 500 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> So, so, anyway. so were they were they they weren't police officers or firefighters or were they no was no it, no was no, it some of the armed some we, of the unrest we we had some stuff going on and uh, it was all over the city I mean the stations became armed camps I mean you had police EMS crew in there and firefighters and we responded to alarms under police escort and there were shotguns on the on the engines purely for you know defense obviously but there was some civil strife going on at the time yeah well, there's probably a few stories back there back in that bricks and bottles and coming things. at you wow yeah so ultimately you wound up getting you got promoted to captain um yeah yeah i was an engine company captain at uh, a couple of engine companies but wound up at market street as the engine company captain uh, until uh, we formed the official truck companies, and then uh, became a truck company captain on truck one at Market Street Station. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. So, what was that training like? Other than you know, don't don't shoot a hole in the kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we uh, some of the younger guys. There were some old, older fellows in the department at that time. And um, they weren't real high on having to go outside and get the ladders off the truck and climb up for training and stuff. But some of us younger guys, as we came in, we would ask them, you know, to allow us to train. And, and that's what we did. I mean, we'd, we'd go out with the ladders and, and with the power saws and the chainsaws and the K-12 saws and all those things and, and, you know, somewhat train ourselves, you know, if you will. And some of the guys would help us, you know. And, and of course, there was a lot of OJT then. I mean, we so were the no, no formal uh, recruit academy uh, that you had to go to. Not, 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 not. We would, uh, we, we got plenty of OJT though. I mean, yeah. we, were, we were busy, busy, busy. Uh, yeah, it wasn't uncommon. I mean, there, I remember one fellow by the name of Paul Barnett, his first day on the job and responding to a fire. And uh, somebody told him, uh, turned around to him, says, go get a pike pole. And he had no clue what a pike pole was. <laughs> You know, our it was really OJT on-the-job training. Um, you just did the best you could. Yeah. So hired in 1971. How long did you did you work? Oh, uh, I don't know. I slept since then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after the uh, after the uh, Franklin Street fire, uh, where Mike Golf was killed, uh, myself and um, Jimmy Patterson and Steve Boland had previously taken a battalion chief's test. There was one opening for a battalion chief, and I don't know that it had was drug out for a, a year, it seemed like, or more before the promotion was announced. 
And um, so I, I was there to work for like six months from, from the explosion, broke, broke my pelvis. Yeah. And um, just, just as I was uh, getting ready to return back to full duty, uh, I, I received the promotion to battalion chief. Bubba, how about you? How'd you get started? It seems sounds like it was a bit of a family tradition. You had a it was. I had a um a cousin in Petersburg Fire Department, uh, Charles Winnie, and then my uncle that I was really close to, uh, Chief Ashby, and um, I played on Petersburg softball team in the summer when I was on in the fire high department school. team. Yep, on so the you, fire department. You were the team. ringer. You, they brought you in as a ringer as a high school player. Yeah, I think I just made it so they could play, <laughs> and um. They worked for my dad. These guys worked for my dad building <coughs> homes on their days off. You know, so I knew them and worked with them. And when I I took the test in Petersburg, um, I, I'll tell you, I was – they had the heretic – y'all remember the heretic feed and seed fire? Very well. And my, I went home after a Friday night football game, and my mom said, hey, your uncle's at a big fire in Petersburg. So me and my girlfriend, my first ex-wife now – um, drove down the hill in Colonial Heights, and there it is. And it, I mean, it's huge fire going on. And there was a ladder truck sitting up, and somebody was on the top. I could see the person on the top of the ladder, and I told her then, I said, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. Well, and I was a in senior high in high school. Yeah. And uh, that was in the fall of my senior year. And then I came here two days later to Colonial Heights Fire Department. And put an application in so i was a volunteer and i did that took the they let me out of school to take the test for petersburg and two weeks after i graduated high school i was in drill school in petersburg and that's all i ever did 34 years what year was that what year you graduated 1981 july 1 1981 is when i went in to petersburg and drill school was like Four weeks, six say, weeks. Ten, ten years later, now they got at least a drill school going. Our burn house, our burn house was the bathrooms at the Petersburg Fairgrounds area. That was a burn house, and then we we burned Shorty and Reds, mm -hmm. Shorty and Reds Rib Place. That was our live burn, um, and we did pit fires. We, it, yeah, it was crazy stuff back then. But that's what I did, and I stayed there for three and a half years. So and, uh, I want to go back to this whole fairgrounds bathroom smokehouse deal. That was the that, that was, was what the, you used as a smokehouse. It was, so it was a, just a, it was a block restroom yeah, building. It was a big, was a big uh, bathroom at the old fairgrounds back behind Company Three, and that's what we used as our first smokehouse until we got Shorty and Rids restaurant right the corner of was it With, with or Washington? With, with and Crater, yeah, and we um and we burned that. And that that was our that was training. That was our training. So did they have, did they put I mean le legitimate fires in the bathrooms? Yeah, I'm guessing they were block block and brick buildings, mm -hmm. so you couldn't build, burn the building down. But they built fires in the bathrooms, and you go in and fight them. Yeah. Gee. Yeah. And they could sit there and just let the fires get bigger and bigger until they're yep. going over your head mm -hmm. out the door. And you didn't um you didn't have bunker pants and and stuff like that. You you had three quarter boots and a coat. No hood. No, no, next. no, I'll tell you what, you know, that picture you saw of me, when you see that picture, you see right here is not burned. You had your hood, you had hood on. And back then, Kenny Fenier gave me that hood for my graduation when I graduated high school. 
And that's the only reason I had a hood, because back then, they didn't issue you hoods. If you had one, it's because you bought it. So your issue gear was three-quarter boots, jacket, helmet. Gloves. Gloves. That was it. Different times. So uh, you, you let you wind up leaving Petersburg and coming to Chesterfield. What, yeah, what, that was sort of that? a joke. It was not a joke going there. It was a great career. It was a joke because I was at Station 2 for a long time, long time, over two years. And um, they're like, hey, you're going to number three. I'm like, I ain't going to number three. In Petersburg. You were in number right. two in Petersburg. I'm like, I'm staying right here at number two. And they said, no, you pretty good chance you're going to number three. And um, I'd already taken the test. I was waiting for the interview. And back then you interviewed with Chief Eanes and you sat at a table and you didn't talk about the fire department. You talked about everything else. And uh, when it was done, he looked at me and said, Harry, tell your uncle. I said, hi. And I was like, I'm going to get this. That's a positive sign. (laughs) That's a positive sign. So I got the next work day. You know, when I found out I was getting hired, I went to work and they said, yeah, you're transferred to number three. You go there uh, next week or something like that. And I said, well, here's my two-week notice. And I'd already... I'd already decided to leave because it was. I was making eight thousand dollars a year in Petersburg, nineteen eighty one, two three. What they paid you that much? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was back in nineteen. I mean, yeah, nineteen eighty four. Because I left October of nineteen eighty four, and um, went to Chesterfield making twelve, and thought I was the richest man on earth. We had to go through another recruit school then. When you come to Chester, that was a lot longer and a lot harder. Things had changed, and it was it was different. Just a couple of years, and I think you went to number two right after to number two in Chesterfield, didn't you? Didn't you come to two? No, we were. I was um, Mike Panino, and I I think he was number one. I was number two in drill school, and you got to pick where you wanted to go. And I went to ten working for Steve Oaks. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. So where did your career take you in Chesterfield? So that was eighty. Four, you said? 84, yeah. I was at 10 for a little while, working for Oaks. Then I went to two. Then I got promoted. I don't even remember. I got promoted to, um, it was sergeant. They changed it to lieutenants um, and went to nine for a year. Then I went to two as a lieutenant for a while, like six years. Then I got promoted to captain and went to 10. Then I left 10, and I was on truck 12 as the captain for 12 years. So truck 12 being right across the, right across the line from Petersburg. And I went in there many a day and night running fires with them. And, it, I mean, it worked out great. I knew the city. I knew how they operated, and it, I loved going over there. Yeah, yeah that's uh, – let me let me say, that's where I learned how to fight fire. Your first tour in Petersburg or on the 12, 12 uh, My truck? first tour in Petersburg. My My – Three and a half years in Petersburg. We, you came in in the morning. You checked your your air pack, which is primitive looking now. But you checked your air pack because you knew you were wearing it that day. That you were going to wear it just about every day you came to work. And um, not not because you were just wearing it, because you had to go fight a fire. Somewhere. Right, you were going to run a fire. And people like Gene Beamer. I mean, I, Gene Beamer taught me how to fight fire. He taught me how to be a firefighter. And it was none of this rehab, none of that. You you went in because would you have fifteen people on duty, and you ran a house fire. You weren't going to rehab. Rehab was the time the driver took to change your air bottle and tap you on the helmet to go back in. That was your rehab. That was rehab. Yeah. 
So what about the what about the fire service back then in the seventies and early eighties? Um, do you think we've lost today? I mean, you, I don't know how long, uh, Jimbo, how long you've been out, but uh, what do you think that was going on back in the seventies and eighties when you were in the heyday uh, that the new generation doesn't get or doesn't understand or may miss? Uh, Bubba was one of the fortunate ones. He had an air pack. We didn't have air packs. <laughs> <laughs> so they mi missed uh, the lack of breathing apparatus. <laughs> it was MSA-type and filter mask. It was a charcoal counter mask, a little red square rectangle thing with a face-piece tube chest. and a face-piece, yeah. And uh, – yeah, that was the uh, that that was the alternate to the Type N. Several uh, New York firefighters were uh, killed in an elevator fire, and um, the next day we had one air pack at each station. Who who got that? Uh, usually the tailboard firefighter, which was Glenn and myself, or but we didn't we didn't. Which was the greatest we, spot in the fire department being on tailboard? Yeah, we didn't. Uh, we didn't take. We didn't use them, you know. Yeah, it's just you know we responded to uh, mutual aid or Virginia State University Chemistry Hall, and uh, I was the one that grabbed the one self-contained breathing apparatus to assist in that. It was the only one we had on the unit. So did, were you the only one to go in, or yeah, everybody else went I out? I was without? the only one to go into the building yeah. because I was the only one with an SCPA. So much for that. Uh Two in, two out rule. Oh, that wasn't even around then, was it? Wasn't even around. And, you know, talking about, you know, what Bob was just talking about as far as rehab or whatever, I remember one house fire on Harrison Street, or, or was it Hart? No, it was, yeah, it was Harrison Street. And uh, I sucked out six bottles before I had a break. Mm -hmm. You know, you just didn't have, you know, not saying it's good or bad, but it's just different. It's yeah. just different. I mean, the question that you asked Jimbo just now as far as, some of the what they're missing out on today. I mean, all of us experience the thrill of riding tailboard. Oh, and they just don't do that. You know, it it is a thrill. It's a thrill when you go through uh, Hall Street and Courthouse over that bump, you just kind of float for a little while and then come back to the tailboard. Better hang on. Yep. Yeah, I, I I was lucky enough to ride R model Mac. My first first unit I was on at a number two was R model. So. There was no jump seat. You had to ride a tailboard or you walked one or the other. So, let's talk about uh, the, the department in Petersburg back uh, in this this early '80s window. Um, I got some notes here. It's, the city itself is just 24 square miles, and there were five fire stations, five engine companies, and two trucks. But I think the engine companies were a little different back then. Is that right? They, there were some stations that were a one-piece station and some pieces, some stations had like a pumper and a, and a wagon. How, how was that working out? <laughs> it was a mix. Uh, we were in a period of transition. Uh, we still had a couple of uh, two-piece where, you know, the wagon supported by a, a pumper. And I think that was true for Market Street number two. Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was still true for Walnut, Walnut Hill. Walnut Hill, yeah. But uh, five out on Johnson Road, six on Wagner Road, they were single-piece companies. And um, Being the pumper driver, you were on your own, and it was your job to find the hydrant and get water sent back up. There was no backer. 
there was you might back a hundred <coughs> yards by up yourself. the street by yourself in a driving rainstorm so you could drop your line and go back to the hydrant and that was that was a great job so that the, was the awesome. pumper was the hydrant piece Yes. Yeah, and the wagon was the attack, attack piece attack that was at the, at the front door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at that time we were still running uh, three-quarter high pressures, and the initial attack would be taken uh, in with that three-quarter while— Three-quarter inch hose. Three-quarter inch hose, high pressure, uh, operating off of tank water while they established uh, uh, hydrant supply. If the fire lasted that long— Here's what's interesting, too. You're talking about that. The, I, I'm guessing maybe it was a John Bean pump. I know Chesterfield had some John Correct. Bean pumps that were high-pressure yeah. pumps right. that had that three-quarter-inch hose with the high-pressure nozzles. And everybody went, oh, that's horrible. We need inch and a half and flowing 195, 105 gallons a minute. We need more mm-hmm. water now. It's up to 200 gallons. And now um, a friend of mine with the ATF is doing some research on high-pressure nozzles and hoses and he's finding that if you work if you use it right it actually works like it did back then and we used it right yeah you know we knew uh, its limitations and uh there was plenty of times that we packed hose and a large diameter well large diameter the largest we had at the time was two and a half and threes uh didn't have any five inch uh but at the time uh you know that this downtown fire was took place i mean we were in a period of transition we were getting away from the three quarters some of us were kicking and screaming over it but we were getting moving away from the three quarter and going to inch and a half inch and three quarter and uh, large diameter supply hose five inch so um you know it was a as i said a period of transition you could put some fire out with that thing 17 gallons to 35 gallons a minute was the flow on those it developed 1,000 pounds pressure at the pump. It was a positive displacement pump, three pistons. Uh, 1,000 pounds at the pump, and uh, you had one pound of friction loss per foot of ho- three-quarter inch hose, giving you uh, 750 uh, pounds pressure at the nozzle because we ran 250-foot hose reels. And as Jimbo said, you know, if you on what was called straight fog, it was, uh, you know, 35 uh, GPM and on full fog it was 17, 17. GPM and yeah. in a confined fire I mean you would have a tough time getting the sponge wet afterwards. so that that was a trick it had to be a uh, room and contents with no it had invented itself was that the, kind of the trick basically yeah, pretty much I mean we we, uh, we probably overused them if there is such a thing but we, we a lot of times we'd pull them on a, a house that was pretty much involved uh, not, I haven't seen too many houses were fully involved. That was kind of a term everybody used back then, but it wasn't that many fully involved, truly. But involved a lot, top to bottom, four, six, eight rooms, whatever. And and we, we used I mean, we believed in them. We loved them. We used them. And besides that, we didn't have to repack the engine. It was easy to rewind it. That thing would skate you across the interstate, too. <laughs> if you, you pulled the trigger on that thing and the ground was slippery, it was going to skate you across the interstate. Hang yeah. on, you're going for a ride. Yeah. yeah. yeah it was, One it was of the fun, fun letting a couple of, you of the rookies try it first, not telling them what was coming. Just, <laughs> squeeze just it fast. Hit that. <laughs> and you could cut the sheetrock with it, too. Yes, yeah. you could. But yeah. what... There were times that it was pulled, and you knew you were going to large diameter, but it was good PR because you were putting something on the fire. Quickly. Pe- yeah, quick. people thought, okay, they're doing something, because there were a few times that 
Why did it take you so long to put water on the fire? At least through a PR standpoint, you could do something. As a fire chief said, I'd rather see you look good doing it than, yeah, there's a case for it. So uh, going back to the, those early 80s, what kind of fires were you guys running? Bubba, you said that was you guaranteed to run a fire. Was it single-family stuff? Was it apartments? Was it factories? Was it? I'll give you a Friday. Um, we ran what feed and seed is that on um, on Bank Street, Bolingbrook Street? That's Heretic. That's Heretic. Okay, we, one yeah, we ran Heretic Feed and Seed. <clears throat> it was a... Um, on the second floor, that was a, that was a Friday afternoon. Heretic feed and seed, some hay spontaneously combusted. wasn't that big a fire, but it was a mess. Took a while. That evening, we run Kentucky Avenue, two story double tenement, and heavy fire showing. We're there a long time. The fire phone rings in the middle of the night. We're loading hose at station two. The fire phone rings because we heard it because. Station 5 was a dispatch station. And it would be, somebody said, hey, are we in service yet? No, put us in service. Engine 2's in service. Beep. We go to Hinton Street for a house fire, and it was burning so good that you could see the rafters through the tin roof. The tin roof was glowing. glowing. Yeah. And that's the only time I've ever seen somebody step on a live power line. I don't know whether you remember it, Gene. But Everett Edlin stepped on, he was on the truck, captain of the truck, and he was walking down the street ahead of me, probably, I don't know, 20 feet or so ahead of me, and he stepped on a hot line, and it popped, and he just threw his hands down and kept walking, never missed a stride. <laughs> we were all so tired because that was our third working fire in that shift. So you, that, it wasn't, you didn't have a, it was everything, houses, Feeding seeds. Oh, right. Yeah, it, it was everything. It wasn't, you know, one thing that you were going to run all day long. Mm -mm. There was an area of Petersburg called Gilfield. And in the 70s going into the early 80s, Gilfield at one time was designated the most blighted area on the East Coast. And you could just about be guaranteed to having a working house fire every day in that area. Yeah, it was like 20 foot by 20 foot uh, frame uh, structures with dirt floors and in the middle of the floor there was a uh, wood heater and they would actually take the wood lapboard siding off of each other's houses and burn it uh, for heat in the winter time yeah now i'll tell something else i want to throw out there is truck one in petersburg was really the only true truck company that I'd ever seen and ever saw even in, in Chesterfield because they were so close. <clears throat> Sorry. They were so close to everything, they were there. It was nothing to show up at a fire on the engine two and their truck one, and they get there a little bit before you. When you pull the hose, Kenny Alsberg's coming out the door, and he says, nobody's inside, fire's upstairs to the right. Well, they'd gotten in there, searched it, figured it out, boom, and, you, and you're taking the line in. So there was another truck company in Petersburg, the truck, the truck two. Now that was that, uh, no, truck one was that a ladder? Was that aerial piece? And was truck two mm -hmm. not an aerial piece? The way it, I read it, it was called a. We called it a service truck at one time, but it was it became truck two. It had everything that you would expect on a true air, uh, ladder company, except for the aerial. So it had the saws, the ground ladders, the yeah. even even the net, even the net. 
which we had, which in drill school in Petersburg, we had to come out the third floor window into that net with other people holding it. That was part of drill school back in 1981. She didn't come out with, though, you out. <laughs> little recruit assist at the, with the size 11 in the backside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we never jumped out of the into the life net. We we climbed Pompier letters, climbed a towel on Pompier Yeah, we letters. did that, but we jumped out into yeah. the life net, and your other people in your drill school would hold it. You'd jump out in a sitting position. You'd hit it. They'd tip it. You'd roll. They'd raise it, and the next person would jump out. How big was the recruit school? Oh, we had a pretty decent size recruit school. I think like 12, 15 people. Uh, yeah, that was. I had five. That might have been a little tough for my recruit school. Yeah. Just be stronger, <laughs> that's all. One of the things, uh, speaking about the 70s and early 80s and the types and numbers of fires that were occurring in Petersburg and going to what Bubba was saying earlier, uh, Chief Eanes, uh, Chesterfield, I mean, he had to walk a delicate tightrope at that time because Chesterfield was expanding so much and you know you had the the presence of the volunteers in Chesterfield which you know they were they were gold I mean you you know but uh, with the inherent problems of attracting and retaining volunteers uh, the challenge was getting enough people, and Chief Eanes, uh, he tried to not make it appear as if he was raiding Petersburg and Richmond firefighters, but if he had an opportunity to get a Richmond or a Petersburg firefighter, he would because of their firefighting experience, because Chesterfield was not fighting those kinds of fires. Yeah. I remember, it was, I think it was close to a year before I ran my first structure fire at, you look, at a recruit school. People looked at you differently when... You were a Petersburg firefighter. They look when, even when I went to Chesterfield, they looked at you differently. They're like, "Yeah, you've been doing it." Not in a bad way. No, <laughs> not in a bad way. They, you've been doing it. And the first month they, of drill school in Chesterfield, when I went there, they were having EMT, and I'd already had it. So I was on Engine Twelve, riding that, and we we ran a a mutual aid call into Petersburg, and we get there, and their eyes are like super wide open and there's gene beamer on top of a ladder holding it with one hand and a nozzle with the other hand just hanging on for his life putting fire out in a window and i'm like yeah there's gene up there look at him and it's called a tuesday in petersburg right right it was just <laughs> that's just the way it was yep. well cool uh anything else about that back that back in the day the 70s and 80s that uh really stand out from a how how we operate now versus uh, ver- how you did operate back then? I, uh, I think back then we were a fire department. I think Chesterfield was a fire department. And we've seen the change. We went from being a fire department to a fire department that helped with the EMS to a fire department that did EMS to an EMS agency that provides fire protection. And that's what the fire service is now. Yeah, I, I've said that many times. Everybody kept saying this was we were a fire service-based EMS organization. I'm like, no, we're an EMS-based fire service organization. Mm-hmm. Because just it, by sheer numbers, that, that's the case. A 75 80% of the calls are stretching Band-Aids and sticking needles, not uh, squirting water on the hot stuff. Uh, if memory serves me correctly, I think we were doing 10 11,000 calls a year in Petersburg, the fire service. And when they in- integrated the EMS, I mean, it was close to like 40,000 plus, 45,000. Yeah. 
and just I mean it's ten thousand calls in a city that's uh, what maybe twenty four twenty five square miles yeah. in size. So it's not a it's not a huge city. It's not you know very far across. How many stations? Did I say five five stations. Yeah, initially it was four, and um, we annexed Prince George and part of Dinwiddie in seventy two. And part of the annexation agreement was to build two fire stations, one near the Dinwiddie line and one near the Prince George line. Gotcha. <clears throat> so there was there was a company one on Fourth Street. But it was shortly after that that it was shut down. Yeah, it was after, shut down after, after the annexation. After the uh, number five station on Built Johnson Rose right. was open. I never up. saw it, but is it true that it still had the stables for the horses in that building? Not in number one. Not in number one. But if, uh, if you go to uh, South Street, North South Street near High, what used to be a hardware store, that was a horse-drawn fire station. And on the exterior, you can still see the bays. And um, when it was still operating as a hardware store, you could go in there and see the hay access. Nice. Southern Hardware is uh, right across from what used to be the old original Pepsi plant. It's right kind of in the curve after you end, mm-hmm. before you go into the trussle to uh, West High Street. Mm-hmm. So it's a green building sitting there with Southern Hardware. If you look at it really hard, you'll see a two-story training tower. You can see the windows, the arch windows that were the training tower for that station. And they, oh, had, nice. they had horses in there. And I had, and I probably still do, pictures of uh, the horses. It's, it's history, man. It's, I, I, I don't know if we ever, I don't know if 12 had horses in it in Chesterfield or not. It, I, I never heard stories about that that station having horses, but uh, Petersburg obviously had them. I know the city had one. I talked to a couple guys in the city, and they're, they're, they're rehab, their flying squad, their rehab units in the station, and you can kind of see in the back of the bays where the horse stables were. It's pretty interesting to see the history of that. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the, the you know, on these podcasts, they ask people about, um, you know, what calls kind of stand out in your mind. Um, and I know you guys got one in Petersburg that I, I heard about even before I came to Chesterfield that uh, we lost a firefighter at, Mike Goff. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that fire and, and your roles. And all you guys were there. And um, it's coming up on the 40th anniversary. And uh, this is going to be just a bit of a tribute to him and uh, that call and you guys for being there and uh, – you guys for sharing the story, so I'll just put that right up and up there and out front. So, uh, anything you want to talk about, mics are open. Anything you don't want to talk about, you don't have to talk about. It. So, uh, so let's go back to uh, this was March 19, uh, 1982. Uh, was it a was it a was it a three story apartment building or was it like a taxpayer had some business use on the ground floor or was it residential up top? I didn't quite get that out of the book. So, uh, the basement had been utilized as a jewelry shop. Uh, First floor was a sub shop. Second and third floors were apartments. So it was really a four-story building, one below grade kind of thing. Yeah, if you count the basement, yeah. Yeah, correct. So uh, talk about the fire, if you would. um, Kind of this book, I've got The Last Alarm. It chronicles um, a couple of lost firefighters and Mike Golf being the first one in the first chapter. It talks a little bit about the cause of this fire just being a, uh, an overheated um, fluorescent light ballast that uh, caught some of the wood frame structure on fire in the in the basement, if I'm not mistaken. What was it like uh, for you guys when you first got fired, Jimbo? I think I think you were the first one on the scene, am I right? One yeah, first that, that's correct. I was captain on truck one at, at Market Street Station, and um, 
as a matter of fact, we had just finished dinner and we sat down to watch the news and I had a cup of ice cream. And we got the alarm for smoke in the building uh, at Sycamore and Franklin. And uh, told the guys, I said, all right, let's go. I'm going to take my ice cream with me. It's just a light ballast, you know. That's, that's how normally our calls downtown were light ballast. You just smell them and then they'd smoke a little bit so we'd all have to go. It was a natural initial two, uh, two, two company alarm. That was Market Street and Warner Hill. So I took my ice cream with me. <laughs> and uh, we uh, jumped in the truck. Butch Burris was my driver. And, uh, and they had the two firefighters under the jump seats. And we go down Wish Street to Sycamore, and we turn on to Sycamore. And I said, oh, hell, I ain't going to get to finish my ice cream tonight. <laughs> Butch said, what's wrong? I said, what's wrong? <laughs> look, look down the street at all that black smoke. I said, she's, she's rocking. She's cooking. We're going to be here all night, you know? Wow. What was the, what was the first thing you saw when you got there besides the smoke? Um, um, we of course tried to place the truck in a position, you know, from so that we could utilize the ladder if we needed it, and uh, it was uh, of course heavy black smoke, and uh, there were on the second and third floor there were occupants uh, at the windows. This was just before dark. Uh, there were occupants in the windows. Some of them had flashlights. Some of them had handkerchiefs. And uh, yeah, I, I come off the truck with a megaphone, and I just directed them, y'all stay right at the windows. Do not leave the windows. We're going to rescue you. We're going to get you. Do not leave the windows. And uh, then we you know, started calling for additional companies and trying to direct the fire ground guys to you know, set the ground ladders and uh, the engine crew and the truck crew to go inside to affect the rescues. How many folks did you have with you on the truck company when you first got there? It was uh, four of us. So you had a four-person yeah, truck? four-person truck and an engine two right behind us uh, with a uh, captain and probably two firefighters. And you say you tried to put the um, put the apparatus where you could use it. I'm guessing this is a, because it's an old city, there's a lot of overhead lines in your way. Yeah, did everywhere. That, I mean, so, did was, you ever get? Was, were you ever able to use the aerial piece off of that? Or? No, yeah. no, no, no. Uh, everything progressed too quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just uh, everything deteriorated really rapidly. You know, um, so we uh, we were doing the rescues and the fire was there was no fire visible when we first got there. As Glenn said the other day, it was just you know, black smoke everywhere. It was burning in, inside internally, uh, and obviously the basement and then working its way up through the walls and the floors and uh but heavy thick black smoke and uh we were <clears throat> working on the franklin street side and like some of the windows uh, on the second and third floor it was started getting back drafts and you know the entire windows blowing out bricks blowing out it was getting pretty crappy yeah. and uh that's when uh or a little bit before that, like we realized that Mrs. Houchins had gone back into the building. So she was at the window. Was she at a window you could see, or you know, I, or I, she I, was she outside? Was, she was on a fire escape. She was she was somewhere in the building when we first got there, mm -hmm. and every, all the, all the occupants were rescued one way or other with ground ladders, with Mike and and all the people who were outside, but also the engine crews that were operating on the inside, mm -hmm. and uh, seeing her when she went back in. So it directed the crew to go in and get her, uh, and uh, they got her on the fire escape. And uh, I mean, it's it's 
pretty crappy by now. Every the pile of lines are falling down on the fire escape. I got her on the on the fire escape with uh, like five fire, excuse me, five firefighters, and uh, it's getting pretty desperate. Yeah. To the point, uh, I was talking to Captain Ziegenfuss on the radio, and he said, you know, she's scared. She won't get on the ladder. I said, you, you know, the guy's got to go. We got to throw a throw. We'll catch her. We'll do the best we can. You know. Yeah. Uh, Kind of a desperate day, and just when you first got there, ballpark. How many how many people could you did you think you could see in those windows, flashlights, waving rags, whatever the case may be? Was it I, three or four, half dozen? I, yeah, I, I wasn't into counting. I was into rescuing, to you know, them. getting them out of there as quickly as we could, getting as much help as we could. Uh, it was just don't know, yeah. you know, several. Yeah, the book chronicles a, a couple of those uh, rescues. And again, this book came out probably '86, so we're talking just a couple of years after. So it was pretty fresh in everybody's mind, and he's telling the stories. And uh, I think it's a testament to the work you guys did that you only lost one occupant of that that building when you when you pull up and see that many people and that much smoke coming out of a building that uh, you were able to get all but her. So, Glenn, how did you wind up there? Where were you that night? I was Captain Engine Six. And being that we self-dispatched, I mean, you were hearing all of the radio traffic, but, uh, um, you know, hearing what was going on and the rapidity of events, um, I told my crew to load up. We were going to go ahead and reposition to downtown to, to centralize, if you will, without orders. Uh, so uh, we got on, we were on our way down, and uh, halfway down we were called in. And uh, so we arrived on scene at the Franklin Street side uh, in front of the uh, Progress Index, and we tried to set up a master stream uh, down the alleyway between the fire building and the Progress Index. It was the alley that ultimately Mike was found in. So in the midst of all of that, I mean, you know, Jimbo was describing where, um, you know, they didn't try to use the aerial in, uh, initially. But at one point, and I think it was after the, you know, all the injuries took place, there was an attempt by Butch Beresford, uh, the operator, to put the ladder out almost horizontally to the fire escape uh, to, to get her. And it, the, the effort was not successful because uh, at one point while I and my company were establishing that master stream, I looked over uh, towards uh, the fire escape, and I was looking over a piece of apparatus. I don't remember which company it was, but I saw her on the on the balcony. I saw a ground ladder up there. I saw the tip of the aerial ladder, but I didn't see any firefighters. And I said something all over the radio about a woman on the balcony. You know, why did I do it? It was obvious, but it's best to hear it twice than not at all. And I looked back down uh, to what we were doing, and I looked back up, and she and the balcony and all of that was gone. Uh, it was just it's collapsed, collapsed, gone. So, it was, uh, yeah, my my description of it was, it was like a an atomic bomb hit the building. It was literally gone. The building was gone. Well, that was this. That was really this, was that the second explosion? Because there was one small one early on, and then the big one that kind of collapsed the wall I think hurt you you were bubble you were in the middle of that one too I, I don't know the exact count on explosions I, some of those might have been 
I think they they would might be describing backdrafts. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were some serious serious backdrafts blowing out the windows and stuff on the second third floors, and um, the big explosion um, that destroyed the building and, and killed Mrs. House and then killed Mike Goff is the only one that I'm aware of as an actual explosion. Yeah. Maybe there were more. I'm not aware of that. But I think the explosion, at least in the, the documents I saw, said it was a gas explosion. It was gas service to the building, and it, there was a leak or something and built up, hit a hit the ignition. Is that kind of the – or do from, you know? From what I know, um, there was a six-inch gas main service main ran under the building because it was like in downtown sections yeah. so the gas lines were ran under the building under the first floor attached to the first floor and when the first floor burned enough to collapse that's when the gas main broke and that's when the major explosion occurred uh, standing in front of the building I, I can tell you it was a wall of blue fire coming and it was all gas yeah. Bubba you were off that day this is another little difference in the early 80s versus today how did you wind up getting to the fire i was at walnut mall i was off and um just bought a fishing pole because i was going fishing the next day and um and then i was going to the movies and i had a scanner in my because i was a volunteer in colonial heights and i had a scanner in my truck and i heard the call come in and i'm like hmm, that sounds like that's something and my girlfriend at the time was like, let's go, let's go. I'm like, no, no, I'm going, you know what, I'm going to the movies. She's like, no, 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 we're going to go, let's go, let's go. Okay. So as I'm riding down Sycamore Street, I hear more and more what's going on. And I'm like, oh, this ain't good. And um, we get to Washington and Sycamore. I jump out and grab my Colonial Heights turnout gear out the back of my pickup truck. Little Chevy Love pickup truck. And um, she went and parked it somewhere, and I ran down the street and saw the chief's aide. And I, I looked at him and said, hey, I got, my, um, I got my turnout gear from Colonial Heights. He said, put it on. You're on duty. I said, okay. He said, grab an air pack and get inside. And went to work. And, but back then, you, you know, you looked around. There was no air packs because you rode tailboard. You jumped off the tailboard, you pulled the suitcase out, opened it up. You know, there's plenty of suitcases laying on tailboards. Empty. Empty. Yeah. So it was no going inside. And I saw um, I saw Mike Goff on a ladder bringing a lady down. She had a white gown on. And he was about halfway down the ladder, and Smokey Faceham was footing the ladder. And this was on the Franklin Street side. So I ran over. You know, I'm young. You know, hadn't been in the fire service a year yet. You know, I'm still green. I run over there, and I'm like, Smokey, what's going on? He said, just here, help me foot the ladder. We get the lady down. And um, she gets to the ground, and I remember Mike asking her, is anybody else in there? And she just couldn't answer. And he said, okay, I'm going back in. And he went towards the Progress Index side, the alley, Smokey Faison took the lady around to the other side of the engine, and I went around front to the Sycamore Street side. And I don't know why, don't know why it happened, don't know what they were doing, but it was a civilian um, and a police officer on a hose line 
at the door, at the front door of this building on the sidewalk. And they're flowing water like two kings up in there. So I'm like, okay, this guy's going to get hurt. The cop, I can see, you know, he's a city employee. So I tapped the guy on the shoulder, said, I got this. And from the time we split at that ladder till the time the explosion was less than 90 seconds. Oh, as soon as I grabbed that hose line, there was a noise that you'll never forget. And it was like, and then slow motion. It happened so fast, but it was slow motion. And all I could feel was my face burning. And I went from the sidewalk on one side of Sycamore Street. It's a three-lane road laying against the building on the other side of the street. And when I got up, my face was burning. So I was, I was patting my face. And, and I'm like, my helmet disappeared. I didn't, I don't, never seen that anymore. And um, I saw the cop. I don't remember his name. Does anybody know his name? He was laying in the street, face down, and his uniform was burnt all to shit. I mean, he was he was in bad shape. And uh, I ran over to him, and a battalion chief that was coming up Sycamore Street got to us. We were the first two to him. And I'm like, man, you know, you okay? You okay? We're talking to him. And a police car from nowhere shows up, like out of a movie. We put him in the front seat, and then Brock says, you're going to. To you? To me. I didn't think I was hurt. You know, my face was stinging, but that, that was it. You know, everything. But it was so, everything happened so slow. But it happened like that. And the wildest ride I ever took in a police car was right then. We went to Southside Regional, and I can remember the, the police officer that was burned riding in the front seat yelling at the guy that was driving slow down you're going to kill us i think it was also at that same time that jimbo you were blown across the street to say you jimbo was the the way the book reads is you were kind of right in the middle of it too were you not yeah um for the big explosion i was actually standing in the middle of sycamore street and uh just right behind where Bubba and the police officer would have been. And uh, I actually felt Sycamore Street shaking. And I said, what in the hell is that, <laughs> you know? And then I, the whole front of the building was plate glass windows. And I looked into the building and I could see this wall of blue fire coming through the building. And when it, when it blew, like Bubba said, it, it, everything went into slow motion. I could see, I could see the bricks coming out of the building. I could see the shards of glass where the windows had exploded coming at me, and I could see the aluminum window frames twisting and coming at me in slow motion. And I said, "You done finally got your dumb ass killed." <clears throat> my very next thought was, "Hey man, I never see my kids again." He wound up inside the store or the drugstore across the street. As a matter of fact, a little bit of a thing that Bubba's talking about with the police officer. Um, 
when I came to, it was a police officer and someone, and I, I think it was Bubba, and, and I believe it was a civilian also. It was a civilian. It was the guy that I had just got off the got hose. Got off line. the hose. They were running around hollering and yelling and screaming. And my first thought was that the police officer was chasing this guy for looting. And I yelled at him. I said, you dumb son of a bitch just knocked that shit off and helped me. Because <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were hurt pretty good. Yeah. 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 So you were, so I think part of the book talks about something you were pinned underneath of a sign or something like that at one point? Or? Yeah. Yeah, it was rubble. Yeah. Brick, one of the frames. You know, I, I couldn't tell you right now. I'm, the only thing I remember when I woke up, it was complete black, complete silence, with fire everywhere. And I assumed that I was in hell. And I said, I looked around, I said, I know I'm a son of a bitch, but some of my buddies are too. I, uh, where, where the hell are y'all at? <laughs> or is this hell that I gotta be here by myself? Oh, wow. You know? That's, that's, how, that's how scary, and it was complete silence, I mean, but it was fire everywhere. I mean, that, I was laying looking like this, and all I could see was fire and complete darkness and complete silence, so. Fire ground operations, as you know, is, you know, rather chaotic. It's it's an organized chaos, really. Uh, you know, to to John Doe citizen, you know, there's a lot of confusion, whatever. But it's an organized chaos. Uh, but but after that, and and these people got hurt, and what had happened, and so many people were taken out of action, and you're trying to regroup. It just takes it to another level. And the only word that I've ever been able to come up with is pandemonium, and that's inadequate as to how you recover and regain the initiative and get back into operation. Because when those explosions took place, it just about took out the whole shift. Now, m myself and my company, none of us were injured because of our position. We did not face that, but it just took just about the whole shift uh, on duty that day, plus people responding. Uh, off duty, uh, just took them out, and so you have that period of time where somehow, some kind of way, you got to recover, regroup, and get more resources in there, uh, and, and continue the the operation. There was a fork embedded in the building across the street. A plastic fork, because of the blast wave coming out of the. They say the, I didn't see it because I was in the middle of it, but the battalion chief coming up the street said the fireball came out the front of the building, went all the way across Sycamore Street to the other building, and then sucked back in. So where did you? What happened to you after the the thrilling police car ride? You went up back in Southside. Southside. I was at Southside, South and um, while I was laying there, I'm looking around. There's people laying in the floor, and I'm like, I'm good. Just let me go. You and there know, was something. 20, 26 people hurt as a result of this the, between the fire and the explosion and everything else. I think yeah, it's a one so. I just looked around and the ER looked like a war zone. And I'm like, I'm good. Just let me go. Sign here. So I signed there and I went to, um, I walked out the door and the waiting room was full. And they looked at me like I was a ghost. I didn't know what I looked like. I didn't know my face was burned as bad as it was. I didn't know what I looked like. My mom and dad were seeing my nephew that was he was a little kid he was in the hospital and they happened to walk as soon as i walked through the door in the waiting room they were walking past the waiting room 
to go home. And they saw me. And, of course, they were shocked. And I said, hey, take me back down to the fire. My dad's like, you're not going back down there. You're going home. And I said, well, then I'm going to walk. You're either going to take me or I'm going to walk. And they dropped me off down there. And um, when I walked through there, it was people looked at me like I was a ghost. I was one of them that was missing because they didn't know where I, you know where I was. And uh, Jimmy Bowman was filling air bottles for Colonial Heights, and he jumped out the truck and went over and hugged me like I was his girlfriend. I couldn't figure out what was going on. Because they thought you were gone. Right. And um, then the battalion chief, Brock, that put me in the police car said he saw me and said, I thought I sent you to the hospital. I said, you did. They let me go. Let you go or... And he said, well, you're going to MCV, go to Station 2. I'm getting somebody to pick you up. You're going to MCV. And that was the first time that I saw my face was there. And that's the picture that that everybody sees of, of my face. And if you share that with me, we'll put that on the Yeah, yeah I'll share it with there. you. And um, that was taken there. I went to MCV, and they scraped my face clean. And back then, I don't know why, maybe they just didn't like me. But it was no pain medicine. They just did it. <clears throat> and about halfway through, they did one side of my face. And I still don't know everything else that was going on at the fire. You know, I'm in my own little world now, and I'm at MCV. My parents, my dad's there, and um, my girlfriend at the time, and you know, they're scraping my face. They scrape one side. I say, you got to take a break. This is killing me. And then they scrape the other side. And then, um, then I go home. I think Bubby can speak to this just as well, if not better, than any of us here as far as the injuries on that scene that night. Uh, you know, not everybody who was injured was transported. Some were treated on scene and returned. I, I, I don't know the story as well as Bubby may know, but... Uh, well, we did. We, transfer, we, transported, we transported quite a few and it happened all so quick. And then we returned back to the scene. I'm looking at people we transported back on the scene. And I'm going, what are you doing here? So did they beat you back to the fire scene? Oh, yeah. They're ready to go. They're mm. ready to go. Uh, those dedicated people I've ever seen in my life. And um, it was. It was It was just chaos. And, and like I say, a lot of people like Bubba, we didn't know. We didn't know Bubba had been taken by the police. We had not a clue. We just knew what we had there, and we took them as we did. And we had other, if I remember... I want to say this, that Etchman Talker came in, rescue squad came in and gave us a hand on it. It was just like total chaos. And like uh, Jumbo Wright said, everything for a while was just quiet. Nobody, nobody reacted. They kind of looked at each other like, what just happened? And then, then everything went together. Mm -hmm. yeah. The uh, MCV was furious when I got there. They're like, they let you go? I said, yeah, they're, they're so overwhelmed. It was a mass casualty incident. <clears throat> they let me go, and uh, MCV, like I said, they were they were furious. In today's society, and the way the medical field is, I wouldn't have left the hospital that night. That would have been a, a couple days stay easily with my respiratory tract and, and stuff like that. On a Sunday night, Gene Beamer calls. That was on Friday night. On Sunday night, Gene Beamer calls my house and talks to my dad. And my dad said, he's at his girlfriend's house. Give me the number. He calls me. And they're checking on me. And my eyes, where I closed my eyes, all that had burned. So now everything's crusting up. 
So my eyelids were burned and my eyelids were wa- my eyes were watering a lot. And I said, yeah, my eyes have been watering a lot. Other than that, I'm, you know, I'm okay. I'm, I look like a freak for a while. I thought for the rest of my life I was going to look like that. And um, he said, okay, we need anything, let me know. Hangs up. And five minutes later, battalion chief calls and says, where are you at? I'm picking you up. Going back to MCV, we're going to get your eyes checked. So they took really good care of me, you know, from that time. I have no complaints of that at all. Jimbo, you were a little bit more hurt than uh, than that. You couldn't uh, you couldn't sneak away from the hospital quite as easy, could you? What what? Uh, so you got blown across the street too. What what were your injuries like? Um, <clears throat> my most severe injury was a uh, broken pelvis. <clears throat> when the building blew, I actually turned to my right to duck and shield or run or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't, it wasn't anywhere really to run. But uh, so I broke my right pelvis was broken in the uh, in, in the explosion. And I uh, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't painful. I mean, I, I was laying there, and uh, <clears throat> I remember the, the, the first person that, that came up to me after I yelled at Bubba and them for not helping me <laughs> <laughs> uh, was uh, Rake Straw. And, uh, he was a fire he, chief at the he time. Grabbed, yeah, he, he grabbed me by the collar of my coat, and he was pulling on me, and he said, Damn, Jimbo, you're a heavy son of a bitch. <laughs> well, it was all the crap laying on top of you, I guess. Mm-hmm. But he was bleeding and cut up and, and, and this, that, and the other. And then uh, Jimmy Peterson, uh, he, he came down, uh, and he said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I said, but my hip's broke. I said, just drag me up the street, get me away from this thing before it blows up again, you know. And he said, man, I can't move you. I said, I said, drag me up the street. Drag me. He said, man, I can't move you. I said, I ain't telling you anymore. Drag me up the street. <laughs> so that's when uh, Bubby and uh, I don't remember who all dug me out and got me and put me in the ambulance, but uh, went to the hospital. Like Bubba Ashby said, it was, you know, like a war zone, pandemonium, and people were cut and bleeding and burned and all, all, all of those things. And and I was okay. You know, I was on a stretcher. And... Uh, <laughs> They asked me if, you know, what was wrong. I said, well, my hip's broke. I said, look, you help all these other people. I'm fine. These people in here need way more help than I do. They're cut up and burn up and serious injuries. So I, I, I laid there for a while. And, uh, and again, I was fine. It wasn't any pain, just just a broken hip. But uh, anyway, they uh, put me in traction, and I uh, was put on the, uh, like, the fourth floor. And... That was in March, and the trees were bare, big old oak trees hit the window. And then I seen the little buds come on the tree limbs, and then the little blooms, and then the leaves. <laughs> so you got to, got uh, to spend so, the spring in the yeah, hospital. Yeah, yeah, so I, w- I was there for, for several months. I, last time I saw Jimbo, I was we were talking about this, and, and I said something about, you know, in my mind's eye, I can still see him laying in the hospital bed. And in my mind's eye, I can still see that pin going through his leg in order to have him in traction. You know, it was just as vivid today as it was then. Yeah, you remember every step you took that night easily. Yeah. Every second, very vividly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys have been hurt. The building, building exploded. 
Uh, you guys have been hurt. You're at the hospital. Jimbo, you're stuck or on your way to the hospital. Glenn's on another side of the building. Now he's now he's got to fight the fire that's still there because he's one of the un, one of the few uninjured at the scene. Um, the way the book reads is there was a you know today's fire service. Everybody's into accountability. You know where your crews at. You know where all the crews are at. At this point, you'd mentioned you know, you'd seen Mike Golf kind of go around the corner. He was going back in the building looking for somebody. Right. right. He went to he went to the alleyway when we split. He went to the alleyway, and I went to the front, and it was it couldn't have been ninety seconds. And how long was it before you think folks at the fire scene kind of got a handle on Mike's missing? We they didn't know where he was at. Well, I think it was a quite a period. There was a long period of time. You know, everybody's trying to account for somebody because of the injuries, who's where, and, you know, who's still on the scene. So you're going through this process, and it takes time to take roll call of who's where and who's on the scene and where they are on the scene, and the head count is coming up short. Now, also in this mix, you still have you got Chesterfield on scene, you've got uh, Colonial Heights on scene, you've got Namazine, Fort Lee. You got all the surrounding communities on there too, in this mix, and and so it took quite a while to take a head count and determine who's missing and knew somebody was missing, but now who is it? It took more time to establish. Well, we can't find Mike. Where's Mike? And that's when things start going. Uh, and uh, I think it was at that point, uh, you know, the fire had been knocked down. I mean, it's still going through overhaul and, and, and a bunch of mess. But uh, being that my company was the uh, only uh, in fully intact company, uh, we were pulled away from the scene and put back into service in order to start, cert- you know, uh, covering the city, covering the city along with all the mutual aid companies that were standing by. And uh, crews were, my understanding now, at this point, and Gene Beamer can probably speak to this better than I can uh, as far as uh, undergoing the search uh, for Mike and the recovery of Mike. And he, he had gone down an alleyway, if, if I'm reading it right, and a, a wall had Between collapsed. Between the progress index and that building. Yeah, the explosion blew that wall out and mm-hmm. basically a three, three stories of brick and, I guess, block fell on top of it. Yeah, there was actually a fire escape on the back side of the building between the fire building and the progress index. Nobody knows, but I'm guessing he was probably getting ready to go up that fire escape to go back in that building to search for more people in there when the building exploded. Specifically for Mrs. Houchins. Yeah, for Mrs. Houchins. So the building explodes. Um, You guys get hurt. Wall falls on Mike. He's obviously, I mean, it's, I mean, the book outlines that there wasn't much of a chance for him once this pile of bricks and block fall on top of you. There's not much surviving that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Mike. I mean, he's uh, he was a eight-year-or-so veteran of Petersburg but started his fire service a lot like you did, Bobby. He's a volunteer in Colonial Heights. Is that right? Guys- I, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. yes, he was a volunteer in Colonial Heights. In fact, he was a uh, volunteer lieutenant. And uh, anyway, when I got – in '73, um, I ran probably my very first call with Mike. Uh, we were searching. We were there was a little girl missing 
Chesterfield come, come on up here, Kenny. Get on up here close to this microphone. There was a there was a little girl in, uh, missing in Chesterfield County, and on a Saturday, he and I went to the command post that was set up somewhat by Upper Right Tender, and uh, we were assigned to search all the dirt roads on Brainers Bridge between Right Ten and uh, back to Point Heights, and uh, we were searching, you know, checking trash bags and all that kind of stuff. Fortunately, we did not find. But um, eventually, she was found. And, and uh, anyway, so that that was my first experience with Mike. Yeah. And uh, he he also volunteered at um, Southside Emergency Crew. Bubby just stepped out there, so we'll get him to maybe chime in here. But uh, did did you guys get to work with him much in in Petersburg? I got to work with him um, at Company Four. Mike and I were actually stationed at Company Four to get at Company Four. I was A shift. He was B shift. We both were assigned to truck two. I was a sergeant on A shift. Mike was a sergeant on B shift. Um, I had just relieved him that morning, uh, the day of the fire. So uh, Mike and had a we had a really good, close working relationship. Uh, he was a very energetic person. He loved doing. He loved helping people. Um, I enjoyed going to work in the mornings and relieving him because he was just like a burst of energy. He loved his job. He loved what he was doing. He loved that truck. Um, he was just a super, super nice guy that would do anything for anybody. But we had a very close working relationship at Company 4. Back in the early 80s, being a Petersburg firefighter, you were you were in a family it was very close it was a very close-knit group of guys and um when i went to chesterfield i didn't see that for a while because it was so i reckon one's larger one smaller but it was a it was like you were family members all the time on and off duty right on right. and off duty mm -hmm. you took care of each other all if the I time were, if i were to try and boil mike down to one word gregarious you know he was just always on top energetic smiling giggling laughing uh do anything for you you know sometimes you wouldn't even have to ask he just he'd see a need and he'd jump in there yeah there's a there's a couple stories in this book and uh, i unfortunately never got to meet him but um learning about him through you guys and some of the stories I heard coming on the job. There's a couple of them in here I've just pulled out. Um, you said he was a good-hearted guy that uh, one day at the station a tractor-trailer driver pulled up to the station asking which way is it to the hospital. Apparently he, the tractor-trailer driver had a friend in the hospital and he's in Petersburg and wanted to stop by and see him. And Mike says, yeah, the hospital is this way or that way or where, but you can't get that truck down there. Here, take my Trans Am. Go, go take my Trans Am to see your buddy in the hospital and just bring it back. And complete stranger gave him his keys to a trans am and back in the late 70s early 80s what a trans am was blown the guy's trans am to go to the hospital to see a friend of his and um, that's the type of person he was well know. mike uh you know i had a uh, family member back in new york had passed away going up there for the funeral and he saw the kind of vehicle that i was driving at the time i mean what can you afford you know on that salary at that time but he saw the vehicle that I had at the time, and so uh, without asking, he just saw a need, 
and he handed me the keys to his El Camino to drive up to New York and back to okay. attend his funeral. And the other, the other story was that he's always wanted to help. He said he was the kind of guy, this is a quote from the book, Mike was the kind of guy who would come along and see you working on your car and ask, what are you doing? And then say, mind if I watch? And then in less than two minutes, he'd be the one doing the work himself. Yep. That's the type of person that Mike was. Yep. Well, uh, you know, we talked uh, about the fire, and um, you know, we'll never know for sure what, what Mike was doing going around that alleyway, but um, it seems like everybody who um, Jerry Laughlin talked to writing this book, and certainly you guys, it certainly sounds like he was there to do the job, and he was going back in to do that job and go get whoever would happen to be in that building that night. So, uh, Out of tragedy has got to come something positive. Some good has got to come of it, uh, you, know, you know, for the sacrifice that Mike made. And, you know... It, it might be thin and weak, but some of the changes that occurred within the fire department as a result, you know, right away the inst, uh, in, um, the purchase of PASS, personal alert safety system, you know, where if you were motionless for 30 seconds, it would go off. I mean, that's common now. That was not common then. Uh, some of the operational procedures, you know, uh, a rap apparatus placement at a fire scene, uh, and, the purchase and distribution of Nomex hoods and, and the coats and helmets and gloves and uh, some of this equipment. But personally, one of the things that came out of this, and it gave me something to focus on positively, was the establishment of the Mike uh, Goff Scholarship Fund uh, through, the, through the local. Uh, that, that scholarship still exists. It's still operating. It's grown. Um, but that was one of the positives that came out of that, you know, that hopefully somebody uh, will take advantage of the generosity of the community that gave in memory of Mike. Guys, I, I don't know where else to take this, but uh, I know uh, it's been 40 years, and every one of you talk like it happened yesterday. Right. Let me, we're going to be remiss if we don't say this. It was a tragedy that night, and Mike lost his life, and the loss of life is that's horrible. There's a lot of guys whose lives were never the same after that night. And we talk about it like, it happened yesterday because to us it did it and it happened to us yesterday every day there's no, i'm pretty sure there's not a month that goes by that this isn't on my mind and it happens to every one of us and there was a lot of guys that were involved in that that night that will their lives have changed forever and that's um that's kind of what I was going to with this that comment of it's it's when I, when I talked to you about it you 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 brought up the date, uh, Jimbo you before we hit record here you said it happened at six thirty nine p.m. thirty nine p.m. yep and uh and you you still describe those bricks in that window frame as if it happened this morning after breakfast and uh, that that's not lost on me that knowing that that's still on your guys' minds because I wasn't there. I still th I think about it because I'm connected to you guys and every year the week before in March, 
my body gets irritable, my mind gets irritable, and it just happens. And I don't even think about it. You know, somebody's like, yeah, you're in a bad mood. And I have to think about, well, I'm in a bad mood. And that's, it happens every single year This on this week. Because you, you're never going to forget it. Never. This is 1980, 82. Long time before anybody heard of the term peer counselors or stress debriefings. Didn't have anything like that back then. No. no. I don't think we ever had a debriefing uh, mm-hmm. moment for that fire. Nope. To this day. People just had to learn how to deal with it on their own. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the guys couldn't deal with it and left the fire service. Yeah. And they never did get the help or never have gotten the help to this day. And I think there's some people I know above you probably reached out to a bunch of bunch of folks that were there that night. Some of them said, nope, I can't do it. And um, we're not going to mention any other names. But, uh, you know, I hope those guys at least hear this or maybe you reach out to them and know we're thinking about them. And you guys, I'll be thinking about you guys here next weekend too because uh, I wasn't there, but I know what know what kind of impact it can make on individuals. And, Bubba, you've shared some stories with me, that, but that one being one of them, and, you know, I understand. Something else, this is for the younger guys that listen to this, where you turn out gear right. Because when it happens, it doesn't give you a warning. It happens, and it happens right now. And if you ain't ready, it doesn't care. Absolutely. And there's Bubba. Bubba's uh, word of wisdom to the to the next generation or the, the current generation. Do you guys have any other words of wisdom for the – for the crowd that's just getting on the apparatus today and uh, starting their careers? Yeah, I would like to say for these these younger guys in the fire department that complain and stuff about rules and regulations in the fire department, for every rule or regulation that's in the fire department, there has been an accident or somebody's gotten hurt in the fire service because of that act, because of that rule and regulation. It's not there just because it's there. Somebody has gotten hurt or gotten killed in order for that regulation to be there. And they need to abide by them and understand why they're there. Look out for each other and train. Just train as hard as you can and never stop learning. Sounds like the reasons for stuff that's in the fire code and the building code. You would think, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Jimbo, you got anything to add? Yeah, uh, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, when Bubby first called me and told me that, uh, you know, putting together the 40-year commemoration thing, um, that, that made my heart very happy. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad that we are able to pay respect to Mike in whatever our manner is, individually, as well as a group. And I told Bubby uh, a couple of days ago, we were talking, after we had done an interview with Wayne Coble, we were talking about Mike and how good a person he was you know, outstanding individual, a hell of a friend, and probably one of the best firefighters I've ever fought fire with in my life. And I mean that. And I fought fire with some good firefighters, a couple of them sitting right in here right now. And they had Mr. Bish band-aid us up afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the one thought that I really had, though, uh, for the young firefighters today, <clears throat> My hope for you would be that you, sometime in your career, 
would be able to know a Mike Golf, to have a Mike Golf for a friend. And I think what Jimbo just said, one thing that did help with all of us, it brought us closer together. And it's a shame that an incident has to happen like that to make you be close together. It is a brotherhood, a sisterhood. It's, um, we remained friends through years. I mean, we were friends before this, but even after that. And then when I called Jimbo and talked to him about this, I felt a little hesitation, and I totally understood that. And I did. And I told him, brother, you don't have to do this. I just don't want to leave you out. You're a big part of this. You're a huge part of this. And there was no hesitation. He said, I'll do whatever you need. And he has. And I admire all these people. I mean, like I say, when accountability is a big thing, we didn't know who was there, even on the EMS side. We didn't know Bobblehead had gone to the hospital or somewhere. We didn't know who really was there, period. But um, there's a lot of good, a lot of good come out of this. And like I said, one thing is it made us closer and be where we are today. Kenny, you got anything from the peanut gallery? Well, come on up, bud. I think everybody's pretty much uh, summed it up. Um, um, it's, you know, like Bobby said, everybody's, you know, we're together. We're still together today. We still know about this. And uh, I think it made a big impression on all of our minds, uh, you know, to be careful and, and uh, follow the rules like, like uh, Gene said. And, and uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of things, I think apparatus construction and, uh, and and the accountability were uh, as a result of this and uh, just hopefully <clears throat> hopefully it won't happen happen again uh, to any of our friends that we know well I don't know any better way to wrap it up but uh, Bubba Ashby Kenny Fernier Bubba Bubby Bish Gene Beamer Jimbo Rice and Glenn Dean, thank you guys for, uh, one, for your service to the city, and two, for sharing your story today. Uh, it's been 40 years, but it's only been a couple hours in some of your minds, and I, I certainly appreciate that. And thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate it.